Bible, but in the Hebrew they are one, uh, one uh, continuous narrative. And uh, this morning I'm going to begin as we look into chapter, I'm going to be preaching from chapters 4, 5, and 6 this morning. And uh, so you want to turn, we'll start in chapter 4. And instead of actually reading it up front, uh, just as a unit, I'm going to just simply as we walk through uh, the this, this sermon this morning, I will refer to various parts of the text. It's a, it's a truly, and this, this section of, of Ezra is, uh, is, a, is, a, is an absolutely amazing case study in how the church is to relate to the world, and we'll talk about that. Kids, I want to start with you this morning. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to see if you can guess what, I am, what I'm going to describe to you right now. Guess what I'm talking about, okay? I'll give you, I'm going to give you a series of hints. And if you, if you can, you shout out what it is I'm describing. Okay, the first hint is that it has seven layers. It has seven layers. Okay? The next hint is that it can be different colors. The next is that it can sense temperature and touch. It can sense pressure and vibration. It can even help control temperature. Think about that. Seven layers. It can sense temperature and pressure, touch. And it's waterproof, except that it can also let water out if it's hot. It absorbs vitamin D. In fact, it keeps out all kinds of diseases. And when the sun shines on it, it will often become tan. Oh, there we go. I heard, one. I heard somebody say skin. That's right. On the, listen to this. On the average person, it's made up of 1.6 trillion cells. Isn't that amazing? 1.6 trillion cells. And over the next hour, most of us will shed 200 million cells. No, that's, um, isn't it amazing? Think about that. 200 million cells, 1.6, 200 million cells per hour on average. Again, we're made up of 1.6 trillion cells. Amazing. It's skin, and it's truly amazing. It, it knows what to let in and what to keep out. Isn't that amazing? Our skin knows what to let in and what also to keep out. It absorbs, say, various vitamins, like vitamin D. It's able to know what to let in, and yet it also knows what to keep out. And that's so important for a person, or really for any organism. Any, any organism's skin has to know what to let in, but also what to keep out. But you know what? It's not only important for organisms. It's important for organizations. Any community or group or family or church has got to know what or who to let in and who to keep out. It needs to know how to relate to its environment. So as a family, think of those, those you grew up in a family, perhaps you have a family, moderating how much internet or how much TV is to be allowed in your home. What do I keep, what do I keep out? What do I let in? It's a very important question. I was listening to a, um, an expert on, on technology, he's actually a philosopher who specialized in the area of technology, and he says that his contention was that in, in the average you know, American family, one of the single most influential things that you can do to impact the health and life and future of your family is to decide where you put the TV in your house. Isn't that amazing? We're going to put it right there in front and so everyone can see all the time. It's going to be downstairs away. Where is that TV going to be and how often is it going to be on? 
And as the people of God, it's crucial, as the family of God, it's crucial to know the relationship that we are to have with the world. What are we to let in? What are we to keep out? How is the church to be in the world, and how is the world to be in the church? And throughout the t- really 2,000 years of history since Jesus, and even before, as we're going to see in this very text this morning, this has always been a burning issue with different people having different ways of different emphases, different concerns. Some saying, oh, we, we, we can't be removed from the world. We can't be isolated from the world. We can't just be all by ourselves. We're supposed to get out there. We're supposed to be in the world. We're supposed to be interacting. We're supposed to be contextualizing. We're supposed to be repackaging the message in every way, shape, or form to accommodate and to assimilate. And others are saying, no, no, wait a minute, time out. That's, that's too dangerous. We need, we need to take a stand. We need to step back. We need to be different from. We need to be holy. We need to be pure. And these various voices are, 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 are in active conversation. And again, we see this truly from the, the story of Abraham onward. We see the struggle of God's people to know how to relate to the world around them. And we're going to see it this morning in our text. So now, now, if you would, just grab your bulletin and open back to the call to worship. Okay, this, this question of how the world is to relate to the church or how the church is related to the world is actually found in our call to worship. Look there at Psalm 106 with me. Do you see it's a number of lines down? It says, but, but they soon forgot what he had done. Do you see that line? But they soon forgot what he had done. They did not wait for his plan to unfold. And listen to this. It says, they mingled with the nations. God's people went into the, into, into the promised land and they mingled with the nations. It says they worshipped their idols. And what were the catastrophic results of that? He continues, they shed innocent blood. Well, whose blood? The blood of their own sons and daughters. Did that, reading that this morning in the call to worship, did that, that stand out to you? Like, oh my goodness. See, what's amazing is in this call to worship, we see that this, this, the psalm speaks of this very struggle. They mingled, and it gives an example of what's at stake. What's at stake? Our children. Oh, my goodness. And it's not somehow that the nations were taking the children and killing them. Who was killing the children? For goodness sake. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. Many times he, that is, many times God delivered them, but they were bent on rebellion. And there's this plea, save us, O Lord our God, and gather us where? From among the nations. Do you see what happened? Syncretism, mingling with the nations, that's called the Big word syncretism is a way of describing this, this sort of compromise, this, this engagement that leads to a, 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 a letting in that which should be kept out. This syncretism over time, as many times he delivered them, but they were bent on rebellion. Syncretism over time eventually led to what? To, to exile, to them being sent away. Syncretism led to them being sent away, where it says, save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from what? From among the nations, because they had been exiled, they'd been scattered. Here God had done all of this work. He'd, he'd, he'd brought them up out of Egypt. He'd, he'd enabled them to conquer the land, to inherit the land, to establish a monarchy through King David, only for what? It all to be undone. The whole thing is undone. It's all reversed. And God's people once again end up outside 
of the promised land. But that wasn't it. As we've seen as so far in the book of Ezra, we've seen this amazing story of how God is not finished with his people, that he does, in a sense, answer this prayer, save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations. That's exactly what the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is all about. It's all about God gathering his people who had failed generation after generation after generation. They had they'd been filled with this, this inability to, to figure out what do we, what do we keep out? What do we let in? And that chronic inability, that, that, that willingness again and again to compromise, to engage in this syncretism, just devastated them. Just devastated them. And as these exiles return, chiefly on their minds is this very question of how does a church relate to the world? And I want to speak to, I want to mention, actually, I'm going to use this psalm, a call to worship here, the specific matter of how they sacrifice their children to the idols of Canaan. I want to use that. If you would, if you have a Bible, just turn very quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 12. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. I'm just going to, I can read it to you. But it's at the very end of chapter 12 that all of, in Deuteronomy, God, uh, Moses is speaking to his people. They're on the doorstep of the promised land, and he's giving them all manner of instructions. And this is Moses, uh, Deuteronomy is sort of Moses' swan song. It's his final word if you will, to the people of God before he is going to pass away. He himself will not enter into the promised land. And he is instructing them on how to prosper, how to flourish in the promised land. And Deuteronomy chapter 12 is all about how to worship the Lord once they arrive in the land of promise. And I want you to read, just see the two verses I'm going to read to you. Chapter 12, verse 31 and 32. Listen to this. He's talking about the nations, the Canaanites, and he, he, and he says there's a contrast, an, an absolutely crucial contrast that he makes. He says, verse 31, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Who's there? That's the Canaanites. Don't worship God in the ways that I want, don't worship me in the way that, that the nations are worshiping their gods. Why is that? Because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. Could he be more clear? Isn't that amazing? Don't worship me like they worship their gods because when they do it, they do all kinds of things I hate. Listen to what he says next. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. See that you do all I command you. Do not add to it or take away from it. He said, when it comes to this matter of worship, it's really important. See, in the ancient Near East, Israel, listen to this, Israel was unique in how it, it viewed its children. Did you notice that? I teach as a professor at a covenant seminary, and right now I'm going through a survey of the Old Testament. We're taking time contrasting Yahweh and the worship of Yahweh and his character with the various gods of the ancient Near East. God in Egypt, the gods of Canaan, the gods of Moab, Chemosh. Chemosh was lucky, had this wonderful thirst for the blood of babies. And that's what you did, just normal. Of course, Americans, we love the God of choice. And we talked about reproductive rights. What a phrase. Reproductive rights. Ancient, the Israel was, was unique in the ancient Near East and how, how it viewed its children. Why? 
Because Israel's God was unique in how he viewed their children. He found them precious. Eight days old, little baby, circumcised, giving the mark of the covenant. He's a member of the people of God, an heir of the promises. These little ones, they were precious in the sight of God. Don't you dare worship me in the way the nations worship their gods. And why, why, so why, why is it that, that uh, Israel was unique in how they viewed their children? Because Israel's God was unique in how he, he viewed their children. And why was that? Because Israel's God was unique among the nations, as is indicated by the first two commandments. I mean, you don't understand, like in the, the first two commandments, the Ten Commandments, are just, are just mind-bogglingly, explosively weird. Israel was the only nation that didn't have an image, that didn't have some sort of statue, some sort of idol, some sort of way of representing it. Their God. Why is that? Because Israel's God was stood outside of the creation. There was nothing that could begin to begin to begin to reflect his transcendence, his supremacy. That he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, standing outside of all that is timeless. Over all things, the creator of the heavens and the earth. There's no other God who was remotely like that. And why is that? Why, why was Israel's God unique? Because he wasn't the creation of men. He wasn't a political tool. And the Old Testament story screams this. You know, if you go back and you read a lot of the ancient Near Eastern histories, so the history of Babylon written by the Babylonians, or you go read the histories of, 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 of Egypt written by the ancient Egyptians, you know, every single one of them is, as you all know, history is written by the the victors, right? It's all these stories of how wonderful the Egyptians are, how wonderful the Babylonian kings are. You go read the Old Testament. Do you get the impression that God's people are just amazing, wonderful people? Not at all. It's embarrassing. You sit there and you just go, oh, and you just, you just I mean, I told, the, I told my students at the beginning of the, of the semester, I say, look, you might need to get on an antidepressants when you read the Old Testament because it's so difficult. Here we are, these, we read the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, and it's like maybe 50,000 Jews come back. There's so many, oh, the overwhelming majority stayed in Babylon. Like, oh, we're good. We're good. And you go back, and it just, it just, it's so difficult, just the challenges that like, the people of God face, and you think, oh, wow, this is so discouraging. It's so realistic. So Israel's God isn't some sort of political tool. He's not the creation of men. Listen to this. What makes Israel's God so amazing is that he is unfashionable to men. And the reason that he is unfashionable to men is that he was not fashioned by men. I'm going to come back to that. Now today I just want to bring, I want to talk about this question of the church's relationship to the, to the, to the world. It's central to these books, and I'm just going to make two points I'm going to try to bring some clarity because these books bring real clarity to this question. But these books, intriguingly, these books also ask some really tough questions. They really do. It's amazing. They, they, some of the things are going to happen later in Ezra and Nehemiah are going to be like, whoa, I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know about that. Did, did, did Ezra, did Nehemiah, did they do the right thing? I mean, there's some really tough issues about how does the church relate to the world in this book, and that's why we're going to tackle it, especially during this, this election season. So the, today I want to make two points. The first point is this. The church is to be protective with its worship. The church is to, be, is to keep out, is to have this strong keep outside when it comes to anything related to worship. The church, again, is to be protective with its worship. Listen to this. But it is to be public 
about its weakness. Those are the two points. It is to be protective with respect to its worship, but very public with respect to its weakness. Let's talk about the first point. I can do this very quickly here. The church is to be protective with its worship. Look at chapter 4, the first three verses. It says this, When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to, to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build. You got that? So here, here, here are the, 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 peoples, the people groups around this, these exiles. They're, they're coming they're saying, Hey, let us help you build the temple. Because like you, we, listen to this, we seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Syria, who brought us here. See, the Assyrians, the Assyrians had this, this uh, policy of conquest in which they would conquer a land and they would take some of the, the, the most influential, wealthiest people and they would simply disperse them throughout their, their territories. It was a way, of, was a way of, just, of, of minimizing any sort of rebellion and whatever, and then they would exile people all over the place. And so these, these people who are coming now to the leadership of Israel, they're actually not from around there, but they, they've heard of Yahweh, and they're interested, and they've been wanting to worship. They have been worshiping him. He says, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of, of, of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Verse 3, but Zerubbabel, that's the head political leader, descendant of David, Joshua, who is the, the, the priest, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. And you may stop. You know, I, I'll confess, when I first read this, I thought, man, what are you doing? These people want to help you. They want to worship God with you. That, what? Why would you just be so standoffish, so just so, so prudish, so just sort of distant? Why so removed? And the answer is that when it comes to matters of worship, the church, the people of God are never to say, hey, come on in. Just let anything in. Well, however you want to worship, we should worship together. We'll just, see, the thing is this. It's very important to understand that if these, if these persons who came and wanted help in the building of the temple, when they offered that help, there would have absolutely been strings attached. Think of this political season. In this political season, if you're a politician and you're fundraising, you're raising money, and you're getting support, always what comes with that money political favor, some sort of strings attached, so that when you win, because I helped you win, now you need to what? There needs to be a reciprocity. There needs to be their strings attached. And even as sincere as these persons may have been, they were, yes, they were seeking Yahweh. Yes, they were worshiping Israel's God, but guess what? Not only Israel's God. They were seeking, they were seeking to worship Yahweh and Chemosh, and, and the various gods of the, of the ancient Near Eastern pantheon. They would have been hedging their bets. They would have said, yeah, Yahweh and everybody else. And the leadership of God's people said, whoa, time out. I'm sorry. And they actually are very shrewd here. They, they say, look, King, the King Cyrus, he's the guy. He told us to build this. Sorry. And there's an exclusivity here. Israel's God is never, listen to this, Israel's God is never who we expect him to be. He's never like that. He's, we are not to unite within the world in worshiping God. 
And this is especially true when it comes to the person of Jesus. Now, let me say this, it's just so important. As I, whenever I'm teaching or preaching um, the word, I am always taken back by Israel's God. He's never who I think he's going to be. Jesus is never who I think he's going to be. It's amazing how many times I've read the Bible, and I'm always shocked that God is never who I would like him to be or who I think he should be. Let me give you an example. God is a God of wrath. You can't read the Old Testament. You can't read the New Testament. You can't read Jesus. But Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in, in, the, in the Bible. You think, do we really have to talk about hell? I mean, is that really something that, isn't that just, ugh, just grates me the wrong? We live in a society that's all about tolerance. It's all about acceptance. We'll go to Romans chapter 12, where Paul exhorts the Roman Christians. Listen to what he says. Do not take revenge, my friends. Don't resort to litigation. Don't always be trying to get back at everyone. Don't always be attacking, counterattacking. Why? Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Wait a minute, hold on, time out. So you're saying I can be freed from vengeance because there's someone else who sees and who is able to administer justice far more accurately, far more uh, fully than I could ever do. And so what, is that, what does that free me to do? Well, he tells us, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. See, God's wrath frees me to pursue an agenda of mercy, of love. I'm going to give this to the Lord. He's just, he sees it all, he'll remember, he knows what he's doing, and I will let him handle it. And yet we live in a society today that we are all about vengeance. We're all about canceling others, we're about silencing them, we're about making sure they get it. We are a deeply litigious society that needs more than anything, get this, to hear the good news of God's wrath. The good news that he is just and that frees us to love. We need to hear the news from Psalm, 130, Psalm 37 that says, listen to this, God laughs at the wicked. He gets so angry, so frustrated, all the corruption out there, those corrupt politicians, those corrupt executives, those corrupt, you know, all this corruption, you see it all around you, you're just so angry. Psalm 37 says, look, God's laughing. He's got this. No one's going to get away with anything. And his wrath is so great, you would never wish it upon your enemies. So much so that you might even begin to pray for your enemies. See, God's character, at first of all, I don't like that. I don't like, I don't like Israel's God. Well, that's good. We should always be disappointed by Israel's God because he's never what we want it to be. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. In fact, Israel's God, listen to this. Israel's God is everything we never knew we always wanted. Let me say that again. Israel's God is everything we never knew we always wanted good. I so appreciated your words, Brenda. It was just so beautiful. Really? Really? That's what you read the Old Testament, you're like, really? And God's like, yeah, really. Because I love you and I know what I'm doing. I'm not going to be someone that I'm not. I'm not going to be your creation of me. 
I'm not going to be this thing that you, know, that you fashion and fit in your, for your little categories because that wouldn't be loving. So when it comes to worship, the church is to be super protective. No, no, no. We're going to worship God as he says in his word. We're going to worship the God who reveals himself in his word. The church is to be very protective when it comes to worship. Let me just briefly ask you, where are we not being protective when it comes to worship? What are the gods of this age that we are seeking to to be in sync with? Think about that. Maybe it's, maybe for example, maybe it's political power in this election season. We're just so caught up because we know, we know that Biden has to win or Trump has to win because everything's going to go to hell in a handbag if the right guy doesn't win. Because we worship the God of political power that says that it's this God who will get us back to the garden. This God who will usher in an age of utopian bliss. We'll all hold hands and we'll all get along. Is the church worshiping political power by, just, by dividing itself, just killing one another on social media? Because we know if you have a, a, a cell in your brain, you'll vote for this guy. Are we bowing down before technology and losing our children to screens? Letting in all this garbage of just, and it's just, so, it's just what's so brilliant about the, the social media today is that a minute of it, two minutes of it, even 30 minutes of it, it's innocuous. You add up two hours a day, five hours a day of TV watching, it will kill you. That's the brilliance. It's a slow, subtle, toxic intake, and eventually it just, just takes over. Money. Oh, does the church worshiping money? Are we, are we generous? Are we so ready to give as our God calls us to give, to give to his, to his ministries, to give to our neighbors, especially during this time of uncertainty? And finally, the God of choice. It's all about my choice. I come to church as a consumer, and, and look, if, if this is this, not what I want, I'm gone. Do what I want to. I'm conversion easy, but I'm commitment proof. Don't think you can ever tell me that, you ha- that I have to do anything. I'm not here to tell you have to do anything. I am not. But Jesus is. He really is. And he's here to save us from our choice. To save us from ourselves. We know as parents that if our children were left to make their own choices, it'll be disastrous. But we parents know better. Right? So Israel's God, let me say it again, wasn't and isn't fashionable to men because he wasn't fashioned by men. So first, the church is to be protective of its worship, protective with its worship, but ready. second, the church is to be public about its weakness. Look with me at chapter 5. We're going to walk through this chapter. I'm going to explain it to you very simply. It's an amazing story. I'm going to show you how this little group of exiles absolutely kill it in relating to their context. This is so amazing. Look at chapter 5. So the rest of chapter 4 is basically the, the, God's, the enemies of God's people. They're, they're protective about their worship, and God's enemies have a throw of fit. And they do everything they can to sabotage the building of the, te- of the, of the temple. It's a very difficult story. Chapter 5 begins here. Let's look at this. Chapter 5 begins. It says, Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, you recognize those from the other one in the Old Testament. This is when they lived. They prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. 
Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Jehozadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. So the prophets came, they heard the word of God, and they were moved to make the house of God central to their lives again and to invest in it, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Then look at verse 3. At that time, Tetanai, governor of the trans-Euphrates, and Shethar, Bozani, and their associates went to them and asked, who authorized you to, to rebuild this temple and to finish it? They also asked, what are the names of those who are constructing this building? They're, they're taking names. Verse 5, but the eyes of their God was, wa- the eye of their God, <clears throat> excuse me, was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius, King Darius, and, and his written reply be received. So they kept, they didn't stop, they kept, they kept working. Now, this is the copy of the letter. This is so neat. You see, this, this copy is a correspondence here. This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, governor of the Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bozani and their associates, the officials of the Trans-Euphrates, sent to the king of Darius, to, to King Darius. The reports they sent him read as follows to King Darius. Cordial greetings. The king should know that we went to the district of Judah, to the temple of the great God. The people are building it with large stones and placing the timbers in the walls. The work is being carried on with diligence and is making rapid progress under their direction. We questioned the elders and asked them, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and to, furnish it and to finish it? We also asked them their names so that we could write down the names of the leaders for your information. And this is the answer they gave us. Now, I want you, this is what I want you to pay attention to. Listen to this beautiful response, this publication of their own weakness, their own waywardness their own wickedness even. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, one that a great king of Israel built and finished. Who was that? It was Solomon, right? But because, listen to this, but because our ancestors angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldean, king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. Isn't that amazing? They just out with it. You know, they said, we blew it, our ancestors. We worshiped the God of heaven, and we failed. It was a disaster. And we were, and in fact, King Nebuchadnezzar, he came, and at the instrumentation of, 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 of our God, he, he came and took us away, deported, exiled, destroyed the temple, and deported the people to Babylon. What an admission We are this chronically unfaithful people, and we have failed so much. And they continue, and they tell the stories. Yeah, but then the first year of King Cyrus, he issues this decree, and here we are, and we're now seeking to rebuild it, etc. And and they they simply report it. And then it's in chapter 6 that you have this very this response of, of the king. They go and they look for the decree of Cyrus. They find it. And, and, and King Darius is like, yeah, keep building. This is exactly where here are more resources to build. See, when God's people are so quick to publicize their weaknesses, when we're quick to confess our sins, it has this incredibly counterintuitive impact. That is true not only publicly, collectively, corporately. It's true individually. How many times have I thought as a spouse, as a husband, if I confess this to my wife, nothing good will come from it. Nothing good. And something always unexpectedly amazing comes from confessing sin. When we confess our sins to our family members, 
extended family, when we confess our sins to our co-workers, we're the first to say, you know what, I'm sorry, i got to own that. That was on me. That was my fault. I blew it there. That is, listen to this, that is otherworldly. No one does that of their own power, and it speaks of the power of a power from another world. How is the church to relate to the world? Simple. We are to be protective when it comes to worship. To worship Jesus as he is and all, and all that he is, all his wisdom, all his wonder, all his welcome, and yet all his wrath, all that he is, everything that he says he is, especially the parts that we find, oh, it's just so uninviting, so ugly, so embarrassing. We're to be protective of worship, but we are to be public about weakness. Let me close with this. It's a beautiful story. If you know, have you ever heard of Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis? Very famously, in 1962, there were some uh, Afro-American uh, protesters, those who came to do what's called a kneeling, where they came to the church on a Sunday morning because they wanted to go inside the church to be present and kneel in because the church was not allowing any, anyone but white people. It was in 2012, 50 years later, that there was in Memphis sort of this stirring about this recollection, hey, this happened 50 years ago. And Sandy Wilson was, the, was the, then the minister of this church, and it was at the time, it was actually a Presbyterian PCA church. It was Presbyterian before, but PCA didn't exist in the 1970s, but it's the same church. And Sandy Wilson, the minister, was thinking, what, what do I do with this? We just sort of sweep it into the cover, just, just, just hope nothing, just sort of ride it out, just don't publicize anything, just what, what would you do? Well, Wilson decides, he goes to the session, he says, what if we actually did a, a reenactment of the kneeling. What if we actually did something where we, we publicized this as loudly as we could, reminding everyone of what we did wrong 50 years ago? And they did. They did this amazing reenactment. They had this guy who was a PhD. He had studied that particular event, wrote, his, wrote a book on it. He came and he recounted the actual events themselves. And, and, and they named it. They had, they had a number of different people speaking, per persons who actually were there or were children of those who were there. An amazing thing. And the church published, publicized its weakness. And brothers and sisters, it was powerful. So powerful. How does the church relate to the world? By protecting its worship and by publicizing its weakness. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as, we, as we've seen, Lord, we do not have the power. We're so quick to protect our weakness. Father, I am quick to be defensive. Father, we're quick to simply give away our worship, to look at you. And Father, it's like all of us, our hearts are just like Brenda. Lord, just really? You're so incompetent. You're so uncaring. You don't know what you're doing. And Father, we lose sight of who you are, your majesty, your splendor, your transcendence, your infuriating mercy and grace. You are a God who loves to welcome all the wrong people, calling us to this extraordinary love offensive of loving the difficult people, loving those who are so different from us, loving our enemies, praying for those who would persecute us giving sacrificially, giving when it seems to the world irresponsible, looking out for ourselves first. Oh, Lord, I just pray that you would, you would so send your spirit 
Give us a passion for your word that would, that would seek to be so protective of our hearts to worship you. To want to worship you as you are. We long for that, Father. We do. We long. Send your spirit that, we might, that you might stir our hearts toward a compassion that sees our children as you see them. Father, that sees the world and all its lostness and all its slavery and all its isolation and loneliness and our hearts would break. Father, break our hearts that we might weep with those who weep. That we might come alongside those who disagree with us politically and love them. Welcome them into our homes. Listen to them. Understand them. Pray with them and for them. Father, forgive us for how we have bowed down to technology and political power and greed and choice. Father, how beautiful it is that our only comfort in life and in death is that we are not our own, that we belong body and soul and life and in death to our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, faithful to the very end. Father, I pray that we would publicize our weaknesses as parents, spouses, neighbors, Co-workers, classmates, enable us to vocalize, to shout from the rooftops that we are sinners saved by a God who loves to be a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Father, hear our prayer as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.